Thank you, Dallas. God's grace. Aren't we thankful for God's grace? Wasn't last Sunday astounding? <laughs> uh, Joel said, you know, it's still on our minds. I have to admit, all week long, the echoes of that service have just reverberated in my spirit. It also was a very emotional time for me. I, I could not keep from shedding tears as I met this person and that person in our our building was just filled with folks from the past. What a marvelous, marvelous blessing. And also one thing that was very much on our minds is that whatever we do, we always make certain that Christ ultimately is glorified in what we do. And we do not take any worth uh, in our past, but our worth is our relationship with Jesus Christ. It must always remain that way. Paul wrote the Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, to God the Father. The author of Hebrews writes, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And Peter wrote, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. So we seek to glorify Christ in everything we do. And we look to him as the ultimate example as to how we are to live and how we are to serve God. He set that example before us in these Scriptures so emphasize that. And yet, even though we always want to glorify God and glorify Christ, there's nothing wrong with citing the examples of those who have gone before us, the manner in which they lived, and in many ways the manner in which they inspired us. Paul, or rather the book of Hebrews says this, Remember those who led you who spake the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct and imitate their faith. And often Paul exhorted the Christians to follow his example. He wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.16, I exhort you therefore be imitators of me. And then later, seven chapters later, he wrote, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. That's important, isn't it? And he exhorted the Philippians, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And to the Thessalonians, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. Paul here is saying, you know, when I came and brought the gospel to you, as a preacher, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I have the right to expect you to provide income for me so I can give my full time to the ministry to which God has called me. He said, even though I had that right, I didn't do it. 
but I worked hard with my hands to set you an example as to how we ought to live and labor. And later he wrote, those who will not work should not eat. Follow my example. Now, I don't think I would ever have the hubris to say to you, follow my example. (laughs) But Paul could say that, and he did. And yet, as we look at those about us, those who have gone before us, those who first gave us the Word of God, and we see the lives that they live, we should not be afraid to look at them and say, this is an example of how God wants us to live. So even then, even in those cases, we always make certain we give the glory to God. But we should not shy away from observing the example and even honoring those who have gone before and proclaimed to us the word. I'd been a Christian for um, 29 years when I first heard of Bill Sanders. I've been a minister of the gospel for 17 years when I first heard of Bill Sanders. And I was, always, I was a year and a half older than Bill. <laughs> and I thank God that he loved the city of Tulsa enough to bring into this city a man who was passionately called to evangelism. I thank God that he loved the young people enough that when they used to flood Peoria in the Restless Ribbon, he called to this city a man who would go among them and proclaim to them the word of Jesus Christ. And hordes came to Christ. Hordes were baptized into Jesus. Remember the pictures we saw of the early days of TCF meeting in Overwrite Junior High and immersing people into Christ in the swimming pool. Willard Hudson was quoted in a newspaper article at that time, we're the only church in the world that has to have a lifeguard at baptismal services because the law required you couldn't use a swimming pool without it. I thank God for my brother Bill Sanders and for the example that he set before, a very imperfect man, but a man who lived passionately to fulfill the calling God had on his life. Woodard was telling me one time, he and Nettie and uh, uh, I believe it was Marty still with, with Bill, they were driving to Colorado. And every place they stopped, you know, in those days you pull up to get gas, there was no self-service. But an attendant came out and he filled your tank and checked the air in your tires and checked the dipstick to see where your oil was. <laughs> Every place they stopped, Bill got out and approached that man and said, Do you know my Jesus? Constantly witnessing. And that is what David referred to last Sunday. What an example that man was of being totally what God had called him to be. But you know, not only do we look to the example of those who have gone before us and those among whom we've lived, We also look to the example of those in Scripture. This past week, I've had the man Barnabas a lot on my mind. And so this morning, let's just talk about some lessons that we can learn from the life of Barnabas. Now, Barnabas is mentioned frequently in Scripture. I looked and found 27 verses in which he is mentioned. And in these 27 verses, they describe 21 episodes in which he was involved. 
And there's no time this morning to fully look at his life, but let's look at some very key things that we see that are a benefit to us concerning his life. The first place we find him mentioned is in Acts chapter 4, the closing verses of that chapter. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they'd be distributed to each as any had need. Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Isn't that a real example of true body life? (laughs) We need to notice the circumstances that made that important. You recall in the day of Pentecost, the book of Acts tells us that there were people from every nation under heaven, of course, speaking of the Roman Empire, and then lists 17 of them. And when the gospel was preached for the first time, on that very first day, 3,000 people responded and were immersed into Christ. And a few weeks later, the Bible says, Acts 4 says there were 5,000 men. We don't know how many women and children. The church was huge. And many of these had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. They'd had enough money to get there enough money to live on while they were there for the celebration, and enough money to go back home. But evidently, many of them didn't go back home because they had come to Christ, and here was this church that they now had something they'd never had before, and they didn't leave, they stayed. And when their money ran out, no place to live, no way to buy food, Because of that situation and the love that existed in that church, everyone began to sell their assets and present them to the common purse that they could have to live together. Isn't that true love? Isn't that true body life? Now, some of us can remember a day in which there were individuals traveling about really disturbing the church saying that if you're going to be a true church, you have to become a communist church. (laughs) You have to have a common purse. Nobody owns anything. Well, that's foolishness. As you read the rest of the story following chapter 4, you find a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And they were noticing how the various ones, for instance, Barnabas, who sold property and gave the money to the church, uh, they wanted to have that kind of esteem also, evidently. And so they sold a piece of land and agreed among themselves, now we'll give some to the church and we'll keep back, but we'll lie about it. We'll say this is all we got. And they brought it. And Peter first condemned the man and then the wife. But here's what he said, when this was in your hands, didn't you have control over it? After you sold it, then you have control over the money in your hands. 
Why have you lied to God? Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And the point he was making is this. The giving was voluntary. It was not commanded. And for that matter, there's not another church in the New Testament that ever practiced this. And yet, the Jerusalem church did because of the need. You know, the time may come where such a need might exist among us. Do we have the kind of love for one another that we would do what that very first church did? <laughs> but it must be because of circumstance. You know, there are always folks who want to uh, have a common till. They don't want to work. Paul said if a man won't work, he shouldn't eat. Some can't work. Sometimes you can't find a job. But there should always be that willingness. But if it comes to where we can't, the time we can't, Will we show that kind of love? This is a very important truth to us. First John 3. We know love by this. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has this world's goods. And beholds his brother in need. And closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children. Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Something that truly expresses our love for one another. So the first mention of Barnabas that we have in the New Testament is a picture of a man who was generous, to whom possessions were not a god, but a man who surrendered everything to the kingdom. Now notice his real name was Joseph. He was born on Cyprus. We don't know how or when he came to Jerusalem. And he had a piece of land that he sold. We don't know whether the land was back in Cyprus or if it was in Judea, but he had a piece of land that he sold and brought the money and gave it to the apostles' feet. But notice the name the nickname the apostles gave to him, his real name was Joseph, but they nicknamed him Barnabas. And Barnabas was actually the, the Aramaic name of it was Barnema. And Luke, writing Acts, alliterated, Hellenized that word Barnema and put it into Greek letters, Barnabas. But then he also said, here's what it means, <laughs> son of consolation. That's a very interesting word. It's, it's, it's a family of words. For instance, the Holy Spirit is called the parakletos. And that word means one who is called alongside or one who calls alongside. Picture this. You're walking in the snow. You've walked many miles. You're cold. You're dead tired. You can hardly move. And yet... You see a cabin in the distance. You know inside that cabin there's a pot-bellied stove. It'll be warm and something to eat. But you think, I just can't go on. And you're about to fall on your face in the snow. And suddenly there's someone beside you who says, come on. We can do it. And because you have that paracletos, that one who's called alongside, together... We can do it. That's a very significant term in the New Testament. 
One who's a paracletos doesn't say, oh, you poor thing. (laughs) Doesn't say, shape up. But he says, come on. We'll walk together. We'll get through this. It's interesting, that's the term used, the the verbal form in Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking our own assembling together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That word encouraging one another is that word, actually the Greek form periklesis. Think of that. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but walk along together. Walk side by side as you see the day drawing near. Speaking, of course, of the second coming. That's very important, isn't it? You'll watch a predator in the wild, say a lion who is approaching a herd of antelope, and he watches that herd until he sees one animal getting away from the herd. That's the one he pursues and kills. How many people who have had a faithful walk with God for some reason or other have begun to separate themselves from the church and sooner or later the devil grabs them. It's important that we walk together. Remember Ecclesiastes 4 says two are better than one. If one falls his companion can lift him up. So we see Barnabas as a man who set the example as one who walked along together with other people and by that walking with them encouraged them. And of course, that's the way we should all live. Here's an interesting aside. You know, Carl Eason's favorite verse in the Bible is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, The Greek in that is so interesting. In English, a double negative means a positive. Now, we say, I ain't got no, of course. (laughs) But grammatically, that means I have. If I I don't have, don't have. But in Greek, it's opposite. In Greek, whenever there's a double negative, it's enforcing that truth. And so that passage in Hebrews, it says, where God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It says, I will never, no, never. A double negative leave you or forsake you. And that's the way we should be with one another, shouldn't we? I thank God that's the way this church lives. We live together. We share together. We can look back over the years and see how some of us have gone through hell and high water. But we've not gone through it alone. We've been through it together. And that's the way our Lord should have it be. Another episode is when Barnabas first met Saul of Tarsus. Remember, Saul was an arch persecutor of the church. He later wrote that whenever someone had been arrested and they were brought before the court and they were deciding what should the penalty be, he said, I always voted for the death penalty. Kill all the Christians. And as he was traveling that road to Damascus to arrest some Christians, you remember Jesus Christ appeared to him. You know, this man who was totally saved. 
And then when he got in Damascus, he began to testify concerning Christ. And the Jewish establishment hated him. They plotted to kill him. And so the Christians helped him escape by night over the wall. And he came to Jerusalem. He didn't find a welcome at Jerusalem. His former enemies of the church wouldn't take him back. What? You're supposed to hate these Christians. Now you're claiming to be one. And the church wouldn't accept him either. How can we trust this guy? He might be a spy wanting to come to our meetings to see who's here. So he can kill all of us. But then he met Barnabas. Must have been the Holy Spirit opened Barnabas' heart. We don't know. But what it says is, he took Paul, (laughs) Parakletos, he embraced him and took him to Peter and James. Because Barnabas had such prestige and was trusted so much by the church, this man walking alongside with Paul was trusted. And the man who later became Paul at that time, still Saul of Tarsus, was embraced. And in time, very quickly, they sent Saul back to his hometown of Tarsus where he stayed for a time. Some Cypriots, people from the same country as Barnabas, being scattered abroad because of that persecution of Saul, ended up in Antioch. And they began to preach the gospel, these Cypriot Christians, and There was an explosion of the gospel and suddenly a church grew and the Jerusalem church heard about it and said, this is a new church, there are no apostles there to help them. And they sent Barnabas to help them. And we're told that when Barnabas arrived, he, Paracletos, (laughs) he began to walk with them. And the church grew because he was a good man and full of the glory of God. The church flourished as a result of this man of experience who had come to walk with them in their newfound faith. And then you remember, he realized it's such a big job, I need help. (laughs) Who can I turn to? And he remembered Saul, and he traveled to Tarsus and found Saul and brought him back. And for a full year, they walked together with the church. And the church flourished. The next episode, I think, is an important one for us at TCF. We read that a group of the leaders, prophets, and teachers were fasting, ministering unto the Lord. And what a list they had, if you notice that list in Acts. Let me read it for you. Quite a significant list. There were at Antioch in the church, there were prophets and teachers. Notice the first one on the list is Barnabas. This is Acts 13. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Think of that. And the last one on the list, Saul. (laughs) While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and there they sailed to Cyprus. Now these men, 
who were at Antioch were obviously men of prayer. Prayer and fasting as they serve God. I believe God would have me address that topic this morning. Some years ago, Bill Sullivan called us to spend the last day of every month as a day of prayer for Tulsa Christian Fellowship. It came to be called the Prayer Advance. And noting all of the amazing things God is using to do with this small congregation, we were taxed to the mass. God, we need more hands to the plow. I, a few weeks ago, I counted Sunday morning before we dismissed the children. There were 91 people in this auditorium. I went to the mission map. There were 27 of our members overseas. Think of that. <laughs> what a percentage. Good News Club, all the other things, that the, and the individual, I, we go down the list one by one by one by one, what members of this church are doing out there in the community. We needed more hands at the plow, and so Bill put forth that call. For a long time, that sign-up sheet was full. Lately, there are only two or three that sign up for that all day of prayer. I want to encourage us to return to realizing that the importance of prayer is really upon us for this church. Looking back over the history of Tulsa Christian Fellowship, there have been all kinds of winds blow, all kinds of changes, but almost every time prayer has been key to setting the next chapter. It's important in life to recognize that there are chapters of life and there are chapters of life for a church. And in between those chapters there are usually blank pages. And our human tendency is to rush ahead and start writing on those pages before God has started writing. I believe right now, and it is my opinion, I sense this in the spirit really, that we are in a time of blank pages. And we're waiting for God to write the next chapter. We must resist every impulse we have to start to write. Let God do the writing. But the way we are involved is through prayer and at times fasting. I'm at Tulsa Christian Fellowship because of such a time. The last year or so at Bel Air, the way we led was every January, the first week of the year, we declared Monday through Friday to be a day of, to be a week of fasting. And I would personally fast, water fast for five days. We met in the chapel every night at seven for one hour. Nobody could pray out loud. Almost the whole church did this. And then on Friday, we broke the fast to say, what have we heard God say this year we're to do? 1980, there were some directions given, but not certain how to undertake what God said do. And so in August, we did the same thing all over again. And at the conclusion of that week in August, one of the men, a deacon, said, God has shown that in some way, we're to begin a school to train people for ministry. And Jim, you're supposed to lead this. 
I wonder, wow, how do I do that? Now, for more than a year, every Wednesday there had been a meeting of young men from Tulsa Christian Fellowship that I was mentoring, future leaders for this church, but I was still mentoring them. Sometimes Phil Walker was there. Chuck showed up occasionally. But at one of those noon meetings of November of 1980, Chuck was there. Jim, I believe God has shown me where to begin a school to train people for ministry. He gave the exact description the deacon had given the previous August. And Jim, (laughs) you're supposed to lead this. What do I do with that? TCF had just bought this building. The elders of Bel Air prayed and the leaders of TCF prayed and felt that I was to leave Bel Air to come here and this would be where we would start that school. A year later, we launched Tulsa Bible Seminary. Some of you remember that. We ran that for several years. We had 120 people every Tuesday and Thursday night attending various classes. I would not be here today had it not been for that week of prayer and fasting. And I would like to call us today as a church, realize we're between chapters. There's nothing wrong with where we are, but we're between chapters. May God direct us, and I believe it is through prayer that that direction will come as we walk together and pray together. Another very important episode in the life of Barnabas is when he and Paul separated. For seven years, they had traveled together. They had been persecuted together. They'd spent time in a jail cell together in Philippi. But the time came when that relationship was broken. After some days, this is Acts 15, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we have proclaimed the word of the Lord. See how they are. Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with him also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had gone with him to the work. There arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. You know the story. When they left Antioch, by the way, the word that says they sent, it's really the Greek word apaluo. They released them to do that, which God had called them to do. And John Mark went along as her helper, stayed with him in Cyprus. But when they went to Pamphylia and began to move into what was really dangerous territory and the life was hard, John Mark left and went back home. And so Paul said, we have no business having a man like that on our team. You know, that fit Paul. God had called Paul to be, shall we say, a spiritual ranger. (laughs) Hit the beach by himself if he had to and attack the enemy. That's who he was. 
Barnabas, on the other hand, was always a Paracletos, <laughs> one who walked alongside. He had accompanied Paul for all those years. He was a man who was relational. And here was John Mark. Now, John Mark was a relative of Barnabas. The Greek word some understand as nephew, and that's the way the King James renders it. However, more recent study of, of uh, secular Greek literature means that it's probably cousin, and that's the way your more recent translations render it. They were relatives. And Barnabas had a heart for this man, and he could not be what Paul wanted him to be, and Paul could not be what Barnabas wanted him to be. And they had such a sharp disagreement that they went their separate ways. You know what? That's one of those times when the devil had something he meant for evil, <laughs> But God used it for good. The Apostle Paul went forth to plant church after church after church. Barnabas took Mark back to Cyprus, walked with him. And he grew in the Lord so much that later when Paul was in his last imprisonment, death not far away, he wrote to Timothy, Come to me as soon as you can. And along the way, by the way, pick up Mark because he's profitable to me. The fruit of Barnabas who walked with Mark until he became the man of God that Paul could say, I need him, bring him to me. There's such a lesson there for me. Who am I? Am I a Barnabas? Am I a Paul? Who am I? It's important for me to learn who I am and what God has called me to be and be that fully and not try to be what somebody else is. That's very important. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about those who compare themselves with others, and he said, I'll not do that. I'll fulfill the sphere God has given me, but I'll not go beyond that. You know, that's true of TCF. We should never measure ourselves by any other church. But we measure ourselves by this. Are we being obedient to the call of God upon this church? Some of you remember a few years ago when we had tremendous time of turmoil. And there were some who were wanting us to abandon our call to world evangelism missions and become a Toronto Blessing Church. Time of great turmoil. Now that year, 1996, beginning the year in January, as they often did, I would be on my face over there praying, God, what are we going to do? What is your word? The Lord spoke three things to me this year. I'm going to clearly define this church. Those who fit the definition will stay. Those who won't will leave. And this year, I'm going to put in place the leadership for at least the next decade. During our missions conference, March or April, whenever it was, 
On Wednesday night, the elders were all in the front row, and Dean Sherman was preaching. He stopped in the middle of his sermon and looked at the elders and said, This year, this church is going to go through a paradigm shift, but you men, stay the course. You'll not recognize it next year. Went on with his sermon. Well, wow, that's kind of like what I heard. Sunday, Lauren Cunningham stopped in the middle of his sermon and looked at the elders and said, Men, this year this church is going to go through a change. You'll not recognize it this year, but keep doing what you're doing. They went off this sermon. I thought, boy, Lord. Midsummer, Jim Grinnell was coming back from vacation and called me, and he said, Jim, I think we need to call the church to a time of prayer. I said, Jim, I agree. You're preaching Sunday. Call us to a time of prayer. We'll have prayer meetings Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday nights. And so we did. For an hour and a half, in the first hour, no one could pray out loud. The last 30 minutes, somewhat, well, you could. We were seeking direction from God. It became very clear that God was defining the elders out of that prayer meeting, clearly defined God has called this church to the distant fields of harvest. There are a thousand churches in Tulsa. Surely God didn't intend to duplicate the same thing a thousand times. What does he call this church to be? You see, like Barnabas, Paul, different calling. Our call was the distant fields of harvest. And those that fit that definition stayed, and those that didn't left. And the next November, we ordained Bill Sullivan and Dave Troutman as elders. And Barb and I were getting ready to go on a trip to New Hampshire, and usually the elders prayed for us. But that Sunday, as they had us come forward, the whole church came forward. It seemed to me like the whole church. Prophetic words were given, and they all were along this vein. One clearly said, Jim Garrett, TCF is no longer your field. Your field is out there. That totally changed my responsibility in the kingdom. And so for years, as you know, I travel, often gone from Tulsa more than I was home. Do you see the place of prayer? It is important that we as a church understand this is God's church. We need to hear from him, not follow ideas or formulas or what impetus others would want to present. It's important that we be who we are. Tell you something, good elders make horrible evangelists. And good, elder, good evangelists make horrible elders. <laughs> Let's find out who we are individually. Find out continually who we are as a church as we prayerfully seek God. Let me just say in all we do, be sure we're glorifying Christ. Honoring no human but honoring Christ and thanking God for those that he raises up and those he calls. We need to learn the example of the mature saints that have gone before us, the examples of those of us in Scripture, but most of all, let's not ever stop walking together, which is one of the outstanding characteristics of this church. May God be praised.